Good morning, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 17. Today we sit down with integrative pediatrician Dr. Larry Rosen to look at the effects of the COVID pandemic, lockdowns, and other policies on children during the pandemic and now post-pandemic. Dr. Rosen is the founder of the Whole Child Center in New Jersey. He is the co-author of a book known as Treatment Alternatives for Children, which is an evidence-based informed guide for parents interested in natural solutions for common childhood ailments. Dr. Rosen graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and then went on to get his medical degree from the New York Medical College. He completed his residency and also was the chief resident in pediatrics at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Additionally, he is the founding member and former chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on integrative medicine and was also given the award in 2015 by the American Academy of Pediatrics as a pioneer in integrative medicine. Rosen also serves as the senior advisor and chair of the health advisory board for Whole Health ED, a nonprofit organization devoted to bringing whole health learning to United States schools. I have known Dr. Rosen for many years, and I can tell you that he is an exceptional human, a thoughtful father and husband, but most importantly, he's an incredible teacher and leader in the integrative medicine space with the specific focus on healing children from whatever avenue is necessary to get there, whether it's traditional medicine via pharmaceuticals or interventions including specifically looking heavily at nutrition, lifestyle, social determinants of need, education, all of the things that have huge upstream effects on downstream disease. And because of this knowledge that he has and experience, he is the perfect person to talk to about what happened during this pandemic, specifically in that tri-state New York, New Jersey region, where there were lots of children who suffered in difficult situations. And we get into this in the talk. And towards the end, we start to really get into what we need to do as a society and physicians and teachers and and people in general to try and stem the tide of this post-COVID dysfunction. With that introduction, I'm now going to turn it over to Dr. Larry Rosen. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Larry Rosen from the lovely state up there of New Jersey, New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I always say I'm like born and bred New Jersey guy, and it's the best of everything. It's like beach, city, mountains, all yeah. within an hour. We got it all. Yeah. Yeah. You, you live in you live in Texas. It's gorgeous, but you got to drive six hours to get anywhere. <laughs> you live in central Jersey. You've got Connecticut, New York City, Philadelphia, everything. You know, back in my old days when I lived up in Poughkeepsie, I know that very well. So it's a it's a it's a beautiful place, especially as the springtime comes. So let's get started. So I'm going to I'm going to sort of tee you up with some recent CDC data that came out and they were looking specifically at adolescents between 12 and 17 years during the pandemic. And they covered the years 2020, 2021 and 2022. And they noted that there was a significant decrease in injuries and physical activity related problems, which would not be surprising for a pandemic that kept everyone locked in. But what was really distressing, and we knew it was coming, but now it's distressing to see the numbers that over this three year period, 
there was a significant increase in drug poisoning, significant increase in eating disorders, significant increase in mental health problems, firearm injuries, all the things that we really don't want to see, which to me says we're not doing a really good job of helping people handle the stress. So you are an expert as an integrative pediatrician in the world of whole child, the whole outlook. We're not just treating a disease. We're treating the patient to be the best version of themselves to su survive in whatever society gives us, you know, whether it's a nature involved event or a poverty involved event, like we were talking about, um, you know, specific um, issues related to SDN or social determinants of need. So let's go there. You're living in a world now in New Jersey where you've seen all this stuff happen. One, what have you seen? Two, what do you think we should be doing about it? And three, what are you doing about it? I would say everything you said in terms of statistics, we knew within months, you know, this was all happening in real time for us. We, we actually could have predicted it, um, yeah. did predict it, and pediatricians knew this was happening pre-pandemic. So everything that's happened in terms of an increase in mental, emotional, behavioral health changes is simply an exaggeration and an acceleration of everything that was already happening. And certainly the pandemic you know, lit a big fire under a lot of this stuff, but the same people who were hurting before are hurting more now, and people who were doing okay are not doing okay now. So the fact is on the ground, what we started to see was this, no infectious illness in kids. We had, we went 12 months with no ear infections and no strep in our practice. That is, I've been doing this almost 30 years. I have never heard or seen of another situation like that. And so in its place, what happened was uh, disconnection, isolation, um, loss. If you think about kids and their purpose in life, a lot of it, and they may not like it, but they go to school every day, right? This is really part of their purpose to be with each other, to learn, to play, whether you're two, whether you're 18. That was taken away um, and we can go through to the degree to which that was necessary, unnecessary, whether we push things too far. But the reality is they were disconnected from the things in their life that gave their life meaning. So it's not a big surprise that all of a sudden I was getting phone calls 10, 15 a day from parents, their kids were suicidal, anxious, depressed, um, being diagnosed in school with ADHD, which really you know, is a description of kids being distracted uh, and unfocused, no surprise, these are kids who are supposed to now, you know, five-year-olds spending six hours on a screen trying to go to school, um, and maybe for 10 minutes they would run around the room for gym or something, you know, that was their gym class. So no surprise that that's what we were seeing in practice, and I felt, uh, it was heartbreaking, and I felt as an integrated pediatrician, I had some training and unique skills to be able to help families around um, mental health and emotional issues that were going on. And you know, as a pediatrician, we treat whole families. You know, we don't just take a six-year-old and say, we don't care about your siblings or your parents or whoever's living in the home. Um, so we were really holding space for families. And these are, you know, uh, one parent, grandparent, many, some of whom were in the hospital dying, others who were working five jobs, um, others who lost their jobs, um, there were amplifications of things like food insecurity, um, uh, safety issues, you know, 
we think of schools as places of learning, which they are, but they're also community centers of health. For most communities, this is where teachers lay eyes on kids, keep an eye on them when kids aren't doing well, when they're suffering, when they're struggling, there's someone else who's there. It's where they get their food. Many of them, that's where their, their um, main source of nutrition and emotional support and safety is compared to whatever else is going on in their life. So it was really, it was really a challenge and a real, um, and, and we really continue to see and witness the suffering. I think that, um, I think what happened is a reminder that in this country, and in many countries, we don't prioritize kids' health. Right. You know, and I understand this is non, this is a an unprecedented pandemic situation where we were literally just trying to throw things against the wall, see what sticks, and figure out how do we save lives. Um, at the same time, I think that um, we have learned that keeping kids out of schools, um, restricting their access to schools was not helpful in terms of controlling the pandemic and certainly has had a huge cost. Yeah, and I know um, McKinsey Corporation has done a bunch of uh, reviews over the past two years looking specifically at a deep dive of the data of the, the loss of education and the loss of economic feasibility feed forward on this thing. And, and to your point earlier, this isn't, these are not novel problems. We just exacerbated them tremendously. And I know when looking at loss of reading and math skills, you know, some of these kids lost five, six, seven, eight months. And the gap between the rich and the poor, African-American and Caucasian children widened worse than it's ever been. And so, you know, when I think about your points earlier, you know, regarding in this pandemic, we don't put kids first. It was very clear to me by end, end to middle of, of spring in 2020, that kids were not the problem in the, in the transmission of this disease, unlike flu, which they are clearly the main cesspool of, of reality for the infectious spread. Right. But yet we, we doubled down on, on the lockdowns. We doubled down on those kids not going to school, the masking, all the things that as pediatricians, we all knew was gonna send a, a major flare up in the air of, of risk. And, and to your point, we saw the same kids coming in stressed out, um, no infections anywhere in sight. And there was no political willpower to, to really handle that. So it left it to you know, physicians like yourself and our clinic to sort of try and pick up the pieces where I found it most frustrating was the inability to provide the nourishment these kids need that they're getting from school. 66% of their meal calories are coming from you know, the school, the stability that was lost, a lot of these kids, and I know New York City must have been incredible for this. When you think about children living in apartments, you know, 12 hours a day in an apartment with your siblings and a parent, that could be tough, especially if the parent has mental health issues. I mean, I, I shudder to think about the reality of this, where we're in a rural community, it's, you know, there's still out green spaces to run around in. Did you see more of that? Yeah, and I and I when I talk to colleagues in, um, in New York City uh, and some of the um, uh, parts of North Jersey that are um, uh, where you have multiple families living in one apartment, um, the rates of intimate partner violence, uh, of alcoholism, substance abuse, opiate overdose through the roof. Right? These are these are systemic problems that, as we said already, existed, but now you have said essentially you can't leave your apartment, you can't go anywhere. Um, it, it's, it, it really was and continues to be, I, I wanna make the case like I, we're still, we're finally, at least where we are here, 
um, in New Jersey, there are still districts that um, were remote throughout much of the last year, you know, and, um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. But I think that all too often, and I, I've written about this in terms of environmental health impact on kids, and this is, you can think of this in a very broad sense as another example of an environmental um, health uh, crisis for kids. Um, we just don't really give a lot of thought. We don't put a lot of money into research for kids. Um, there, kids don't vote, right? You know, so we say a lot of things, and I've seen a lot of rhetoric on the federal level and on the state level about, yeah, you know, this is a crisis. I mean, there were numerous groups who came out a few months ago with a statement, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, stating mental health is a crisis. The Surgeon General came out with a warning, I, and it sounds good, but I've heard it before. You know, right. and I, right. what I really want to know, because we're on the ground and we're trying to do this work with families, um, when does this actually translate into policy that is not just a reactionary, we'll do this for a few months and see what happens. These are, again, these are structural issues that have existed, um, are disproportionately affecting the same groups who are affected by other social determinants of health. Um, it, I'm still waiting to hear when someone is going to actually do something on a, on a policy level. Yeah, it's, it seems like it goes county, county, district to district, and we're sort of a hodgepodge of those realities in the South. You know, we being a, a purple state here in North Carolina, at least there was a lot of pushback against it and masks came off, you know, a little bit faster. And I think the Zoom stuff went away, thank God, a lot faster, I think, here than up in the North. And, and the Zoom stuff, interesting enough, I think works for people who have means, right? So, so the, the folks that have power are not fighting this because their kids are capable of sitting on Zoom or getting tutors or getting the other things that mitigate that risk gap. Whereas all the children, I know in Charlotte, the city, over 10,000 kids didn't see a teacher for a year. Right. A stunted year. That's not, yeah. you can't get that back. You're not going to accelerate no. You have to build upon that. And that to me is unconscionable. And, and to your point, where are the people screaming for policy on this? We're screaming for all these other policies for other social things that have their, you know, their, their squeaky wheel or whatever is, but where are the people yeah. screaming for the kids? And I, I almost wonder if it's our fault. You know, sometimes <laughs> I wonder, we're so busy seeing patients in clinic. Maybe yeah. we need to stop, take a day off and go up to Capitol Hill and start screaming at people like it's time. It's, it is, um, yeah, it's, you know, what's astonishing to me is that there are solutions that exist. We, we know that we have solutions and they are, and I've, I've tried to make this point, these, there are solutions that are cost-effective, right. safe, they work and they're equitable. And what does that look like? Let's get into One that. Of, so, yeah, yeah go well, that, that, because I think we can talk a lot about problems because we know that right. they exist, but, right. and, and it's natural. And I have had people say, well, you know, if it was an easy problem to solve, we would have solved it already. I just think sometimes the things that are right in front of us, um, maybe they're too simple or for whatever reason, they're not appealing or no one's going to make money from it. You know, it might be something like that. Right. So think about if we're talking about, you know, we know as pediatricians, we want to start early and we talk about prevention. Every kid has an opportunity to go to school public school, right? And you can debate about whether some schools, certainly some schools are better than other schools, but free accessible public school is available. What if we had a goal 
where when you graduated high school in public school, in addition to all the math and science and English and all the other stuff you need to know, you know, I would argue that more importantly is, what if you also had a competency in taking care of yourself? What if you knew when you graduated, um, you had all the skills and you were taught from an early age, social emotional learning skills, how to be kind to other people, um, how to take care of yourself through good, good, healthy access to nutrition, grow your own food, make it and eat it, um, physical activity opportunities, free out, outdoor play, all seasons of the year, um, how to build healthy relationships, how to cultivate awareness and we can call it mindfulness or whatever you want to call it, but an awareness about emotional state and regulation and um, self-care skills to help um, and, you know, calm yourself and ground yourself, um, how to get enough sleep, what those strategies, well, if we took all those strategies, what we call whole health strategies, and we embedded them within the public healthcare system, which is not hard to do and doesn't have to cost extra money. Right. Every year you made that a core part of the curriculum. What would that look like in 15 years of school, 12 years of school, whatever it is, you know? And I think to myself, that can be done. That doesn't, that takes a little bit of extra training and maybe some curriculum shift. And you'll hear all the arguments it takes away from this and it takes away from that. But already we are in many states, including New Jersey, social emotional learning curricula are mandated that has to be taught in all grades, but no one tells teachers how to do that. Right. And what does that look like? Um, I've also heard the argument on parents say, well, that's the job of the parents. That's the family's job. And I don't disagree that it's our job as parents to teach our kids morals and values. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying the school should take that over, but we, te- we send kids to learn. And can you argue that there's a more important thing to learn, not just for yourself, but for your community than how to take care of yourself? And right. so we have this, um, we've developed this nonprofit called Whole Health Education, Whole Health Ed, which is about this idea of whole health learning in schools. We're trying to work with people from Capitol Hill all the way to local school districts. I, I don't think it's, it's not that, it's not gonna make anyone a lot of money. You know, right. it's not about that, but it's not gonna cost us necessarily any more money. We're paying our taxes already for public school. And particularly for those districts that are at most need with the kids at most risk, this offers a cost-effective, equitable solution that's already there and ready to go. Yeah, I liken this to, you know, we, we birth children and parents walk out the door with a child in their hand with no formal education on how to raise the child. They go off to school, they learn how to kick a ball in practice. They have a coach there teaching them to do what X, Y, and Z, but yet we still think giving education around how to utilize your mind, how to stay stress-free, how to do the best you can be to be an ideal human as yourself, that is. I mean, you know, within the scope of the rest of society, we don't think that is valuable, which to me, again, to your point, it makes zero sense. Think about how many issues would be, you know, mitigated up front by kids learning self-emotion, like how to deal with stress, how not to pop off in anger, how not to get angry at the next kid, how not to bully, all these things at very young ages. And that just takes emotional regulation that, to your point, we don't want to take that away from the parents. But unfortunately, there are many parents who aren't doing this, nor some of them can't because they're still emotionally regulating as children themselves. So yeah. it does fall on the state, the city, the government to step in and do 
some of these mitigating measures for the kids, just like we do with food, just like we do with formal education. I think these things, it's very hard pressed for me to think somebody would say this is a bad idea, minus their quasi, I don't know what the right word is, where they have a, a belief that you're gonna teach the kid the wrong thing. Sure, and I think <clears throat> that the criticism we'll hear is something like, um, well, that's one, although, look, every educator I talk to, every politician I talk to, every doctor I talk to thinks, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's, there's no one who argues it's a bad idea. And we can, right, I mean, there are definitely places where it's hard to talk about something like yoga because there's a connotation that's religious, et cetera. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. We can call it whatever right. we want. We can right. call it self-regulation skills. We can call it kindness. We can call it, no one's going to argue about that. I'm not saying that this takes the place of the family, it, it doesn't, but to your right. point, kids pick up on role models, right? I mean, they look around and they see all of us super stressed out, you know, not coping very well. Um, I, I don't think that it's inappropriate for schools to be the place, like you said, where we already are teaching them about how to eat healthy, how to be active and exercise. Those are parts, core parts of public school and health education for a very, very long time. But I ask myself, you know, for, for my kids, for any family I know, if I could grant them one wish so that they had, um, they came out of public school education with some um, self-care concept. And, and by the way, as I said, that's not just for ourselves, that really makes our communities healthier and our world a better place, Right. you know? Yeah. And we all we start to look around and see other people as other humans and not, you know, we're we're all connected in this stuff that's going on. So it's there are many opportunities. I think it really is just a question of willpower and making it happen. Um, but I do fear, I'm an optimist, you know, and I keep pushing and I'm not I'm, I I don't give up, but I do fear that um it's just it's not a sexy thing politically, it doesn't make anyone a lot of money. And sadly, that has never really motivated people in a big way to do something big. You would hope that coming through this pandemic, we will have learned lessons that will fundamentally shift the way we think about our kids' mental health. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's my fear. It's getting, it's, it's now, we're past it. So now it's back to status quo. That's, I think the same thing sort of, the corollary to me, you know, uh, coming out of the Northeast, going to med school in Atlanta and, and being in that very rigorous world where self-care was not taught at all. If anything, even in 1992, self-care was somewhat, you know, shunned. You know, you, you need to step up and show up and do this. And if you're staying up all night and you're exhausted, it's no big deal, get over it. You know, you know the, the, what is that old statement? You know, suck it up, buttercup, right? And right. So even as that's only 20 something years ago that we were even in medicine training people to be machines. And I, I can tell you, before I did the fellowship in Arizona, one of my famous sayings was I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. Right. And I would six hours, five hours, didn't care. I was like, I'm, I'm going for this. And then you start to understand the science behind how that's really a bad idea. And then yep. Andy Weil sitting there going, oh, it's a really bad idea and learning. <laughs> and then all of a sudden going wow, I need to disseminate this information to my colleagues, to med students. And yeah, I think we've lost to some extent the window of opportunity in medicine to really push this hard. And 
uh, hopefully that will come back online now. But to kids, the opportunities now, you know, the, the, the stress, the, the, the COVID struggle, the nightmare, the data, the stats, it's in our face. We need to jump on this. It's, um, it's, it's our tendency, right, as humans to say, like, all right, crisis averted, let's move on, right? You know, this is on to the next crisis, on to the next crisis. And I'm not saying there are constant things that demand our attention, war, climate change, et cetera. You know, there's always right. something really, right. really important to focus on. But, and I, I think it's not just particularly American, but I think our American way of being is kind of like, you know, full speed ahead with what's right in front of us. You know, right. there's not a lot of serious thought given to, well, what if we stopped for a minute, just paused for a minute and thought about yeah. if we made a plan that we could implement today that would save us a boatload of money and people would be healthier in the end, wouldn't that be a good thing? And what if we started doing that now? I just, it's not a way of thinking in, in the US and in the healthcare system in particular in this country. Um, it's interesting. I just, I, I was really lucky last week. I got to visit my daughter who's studying in Denmark for the semester. She's in Copenhagen. Um, and we can sit here and talk about the healthcare system in Denmark. And it's a, it's a little apples to oranges, right? Like you can't, it's a country of 5 million people, all of whom are fairly connected genetically. There's very little immigration. Um, and at the same time, there's a different culture around health and well-being, which is it's a main focus from birth. It is a uh, embedded within the system taken care of. You don't have to pay extra money to get good. No, I'm not just talking about healthcare. I'm talking about um, all the basic foundational things in health and integrated medicine. We talk about nutrition, exercise, sleep, um, connection, all the important things are embedded within culture and society. And there's also this mantra kind of, we take care of each other. You know, we're here for each other. Uh, and it's so interesting to see, you know, when you look at the outcomes for much less money, the health outcomes are staggeringly different. And I know, again, it's apples to oranges, but there is some level of application and it's a mindset, right? really. Um, it's funny, you know, you talk about, um, you know, I'll sleep when I die, that kind of, that's, that's like, that's classic medical culture, right? Like right. in training, you know, where we were taught, um, you're not a good doctor unless you are working, you know, 25 hours a day, eight days a week, you know, you'll, you, you sacrifice everything for your patient. It's noble, but it's a little crazy actually, Yeah. you know, and it's, it's, it's the same. I use the analogy all the time. I use it with our, with, with patients, you know, the oxygen mask thing in the airplane, you know, everybody gets that. Like if we are not taking care of ourselves and we can say this as, as educators, as parents, um, we're, we're not doing a good job and we're not role modeling. So self-care, which was a kind of woo-woo, you know, hippie, uh, new agey kind of thing in the 90s. Um, I, I'm hopeful that there's been a transition in that in serious academic medical centers, we are definitely seeing somewhat of a shift. I will argue that if we're going to just wait for that sort of top-down academic approach to really make a huge difference, we're going to be waiting forever because the incentives don't really line up financially. This is really a movement. People have spoken and said, we want this. We want whatever we call integrative medicine, you know, whatever we call holistic medicine. People spend out of pocket billions of dollars a year. They're already right. doing it. The more that we can acknowledge that and support that in community settings, I think the better off we're going to be.
And I agree with you. And on that note, I think that's the perfect segue. So you're, you're sitting there in your office. You're one of the best integrated pediatricians in the country. And I am a mom, dad. I walk into your office with my child. Let's say I'm six years old. And I have mild anxiety. And I'm just sort of coming out of COVID. I'm trying to, what's, what's your spiel to the, to the parents about what, you know, again, this is just one child, but it's going to be cross applicable to everybody to some extent, because I think that's the beauty of integrative medicine. We do N of one everything, but there are fundamental principles that everybody needs. So I'm, I'm a new patient to your office. I've come in, I've got my five, six year old there who's a little bit stressed out. What are you going to sit and say to me? Now I'm actually speaking as the parents listening to this podcast who might want to learn this, yeah. you know, what, what do you do? What do you say? How do you, how do you take the approach of where we go from here? So this happens every day in practice, right? So right. I, I'll, we can take it from a 30,000 foot view down to the one foot view. So right. the very first thing I do is to listen right. and just sit and hear them out. Everybody tells a story differently. You know, I'll get a, a phone call on my front desk, you know, so-and-so's parent is making an appointment for little Johnny who's anxious. Okay, that's all I know. That could mean a million different things. So. I listen, I hear them out. I want to know a lot about what their life is like, what Johnny's life is like, what's been happening. Is this something that's been going on a long time? Is this something that's relatively new? When we talk about stress and anxiety in particular, there are, I'm going to really oversimplify it, but there are really two major kinds, right? There's that sort of free floating background anxiety that's always there. You're just, it is not specific trigger. You're always feeling, and I'll say to kids like one to 10, 10 is the worst they live at a seven or an eight. That's just where they live and they keep spiking the 10. They're going from seven to 10 all day long. And that's a terrifying place to be. That's like kids living in fight or flight mode all the time. So that's one level. And then there's the, I'm kind of fine. I'm kind of living at a two or a three, but I go to 10, 17 times a day, you know, or much more so than it's been. So I'm trying to listen for, what do you mean by anxiety? How does that show up in your life? How much of that is functionally impairing your kid's ability to be a kid, to play, to learn, social skills, eating, sleeping, all the basic stuff. So we go through, I guess, what you would traditionally call taking a history, but it's really listening to a story. And I'm careful. I'm doing mostly listening and not a lot of talking. You know, in medicine in general, right, we've got, you know, we got five minute visits, 15 minute visits. I've specifically set up my practice in a way so that I get as much time as I, if I need an hour, I take an hour with you. My standard, you know, first consults often 60 minutes, you know, and then we just scratch the surface. So we're figuring out what the story has been, what's happening. And then I get kind of granular about several areas. I want to know about food and nutrition because we know that what kids eat plays a big role in mental health, right? I want to know about their sleep patterns. These are both symptoms and root causes. You know, they're both, they're both at the same time. I want to know about their social relationships. I want to know about how they're doing in school, how they're doing with their friends. Um, I want to know about their activities. What lights them up? You know, particularly as we get into tweens and teens, we talked about early on this disconnection from purpose. What, what matters to them? You know, is there anything in their life? Maybe it's not school. Maybe it's whatever, video games, hanging out with their friends. What is the thing that matters to them the most? Because I know once I can latch onto that and find one thing, now I've got motivation for that kid. 
Now I've got a driver, maybe it's for the parent, maybe it's for the kid, depending on the age. I'm trying to go through and have them reflect on where they are and where they wanna be with their health. And then we start to get into real specifics. And this may happen in one visit, this may, you know, I know that as a parent, I wanna leave with something tangible and practical that I can help my kid with now. You know, I waited a long time to speak to you, Dr. Rosen. You know, I wanna walk away and I wanna have some practical skills. Um, depending on the level of stress and anxiety, we'll talk about macro and structural solutions. It might be that the school, this school, is the worst place for this kid. It's a bad fit. You know, it might be that there's some family structural issue going on or an issue with a sibling or a friend, bullying, some security or safety issue, violence, you know, so we get into all of that. Then I want to start talking about really granular specifics about what they can do. And that might be connecting them with specialists like a psychologist or social worker, you know, if, if that level is necessary or a neurologist or um, something else. There are also in integrative medicine, we think about all the root causes connected to gut health, right? And connected to mitochondrial issues and all of that. So we start to talk about lab work and assessment. Sometimes I do no lab work. Sometimes I do more lab work. It really depends on a lot of factors. Is it going to change what I recommend to them? Is it going to make a substantive difference? Sometimes I do something early on and then I do a phase two and a phase three. So that could involve some level of functional medicine root cause analysis. Um, and then we start to talk about diet and we talk about sleep, you know, practical solutions um, and sometimes supplements, uh, nutritional, herbal, homeopathic, traditional Chinese medicine. I'm, I'm eclectic. I do everything. I'm open to everything. And I've got people who I connect with who are more skilled. You know, if I needed an acupuncturist, I'm not doing that but I know who to send to, or if I needed a chiropractor or a Reiki specialist or whatever it might be. And this happens over time. And I tell, I, I tell parents straight up, the first thing I ask them is, what were you hoping for when you came here today? Because now I, you know, I have expectations, but if my expectation is your child will sleep better at night and that's the least important thing to you, then what's the point? Right. So right. I need to know from them, give me a list. And then now I also know what to measure. And we talk about metrics. You know, it's really important. I want parents and kids to have a clear way of knowing they're getting better. How do I know that what I told you to do is working? I don't know. I, I feel better. I feel worse. People have terrible memory about this stuff. So we talk about keeping diaries and logs and journals and quick metrics and stuff. Pick two, three things. Maybe it's one thing. We talk about creating what's called a SMART goal, which is just an acronym, S-M-A-R-T, which is a very specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, timely goal. You know, it's basically chunking, small pieces, right? If you want to be healthier, what does it, what are you gonna do tomorrow to achieve that? Well, um, I am going to eat three servings of fruits and vegetables every day. Okay. that's great. Every day, seven days a week. Yeah. Seven days a week. And you're going to do that for how long? We're going to do that for four weeks. Okay. That's your goal. And then we measure and we see, right. And so making sure that you leave with a clear sense of we're on the same page, we know what you're going to do. We know how we're going to measure it. And then I'm going to schedule a follow-up with you before you leave. I'm going to see you back in a week. I'm going to talk to you in a month, whatever that is. I want to make sure I don't care if the child's two years old, 
or whatever. I need to see them and meet with them, particularly if they're, let's say eight and up, I've got to meet with that kid. I've got to get them on board. I got to figure out, like I said, what motivates them? What motivates an 11 year old is very different than what motivates their parents. Right. Right. And so I look at this as, as you're laying out becoming the coach, right? You're, everyone talks about life coach and all this kind of stuff. I don't tend to think of it as a life coach so much as you're literally trying to be the coach for each individual child based on their desires, needs, loves, passions, all those things. And our goal is to help sequester whatever is becoming dysfunctional in their lives to allow them to chase their passion dreams in whatever state they find themselves in. And so what I'm hearing from you is as I'm the parent, the provider you're meeting with should be saying what you're saying, right? So if I walk into a room as a parent and the provider is just like, well, you're anxious, here's some medicine that'll take care of that. Whoa, hey, don't you want to know why I'm here? And so I think that's the news to use. And you laid it out perfectly that there's too much provider-based reality in this quick ramified system of you got to get this done. Therefore, the insurance company's happy, the hospital's happy that you got through 50 patients a day. That's not where you want to be if you're struggling with anxiety, stress, or anything related to mental health. So for the parents out there seeking a provider, integrative or not, who is willing to listen and give you the time is probably step number one, two, and three, because then you have the ability to find out what's really going in and get buy-in. And once you have buy-in to your point, now you have become the person this child trusts to then therefore make a decision based on, you know, motivational interviewing or whatever we call it anymore. I just call it talking like you're saying and listening mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, and allowing the child then to be the driver of their choice, which inevitably as a parent now of an 18 to 16 year old, the more I live on this planet with kids, the more I realize I just need to be a lover and a supporter and not a driver. And I think I spent too much time when my kids are younger driving too much. And yeah. I think that's mostly out of want for them to succeed and fear that they won't, both of which are really not good mechanisms for driving actually when you think about it and so i sort of look at this now like you after going through training in integrative medicine that my goal is to be the kids advocate for the best version of themselves whatever that is and now you know as society's opening up and allowing more things to occur that is whatever the kid really thinks it is and yeah that's okay yeah that's you make so many important points i think this um look and i say this over and over again 99.9 percent of parents whatever they're doing, whatever decisions we're making, we think are in the best interest of our kids. We don't, we don't set out to make their lives harder. We don't set out to create problems. It's, it's a rare parent that does that. And so I always operate from the assumption, even if what you're saying a parent to me is, I don't agree with it. It's not the path I want, I want for your kid. It's the path you think is best for your kid at this moment in time. And whether that's treating anxiety or stress or talking about COVID treatments or whatever it is, it's about, it's about that relationship and that trust. And I, and, you know, I have a lot of doctors who say, well, look, I work in a really busy clinic. I don't, I I don't have the luxury you have spending the time with people. How do I make this work? Or if I'm a parent, there's no integrative doctors around me. I can't find someone for 400 miles. I got three practices in my community. I got to pick one of those. How do I make this work? I think you can make it work in 15 minute increments. You can, you know, you may, it may take four visits. It may take five visits. We can, I mean, you and I know like there are ways using insurance to make those visits count and work. Um, 
and to be effective. And it doesn't need to be, I walk in a room and I'm handed a prescription. It may be at the end of the day, that's the right thing to do. Right. But I know if you walk into my office and the first thing I say is, oh yeah, this is anxiety. This is what I do for anxiety. Here's your prescription for take your pick. The likelihood that the kid's gonna take it and get better and it's pretty close to zero, you know? And so we have to stop for a minute and think about what's the goal here. And, and again, it's this breakdown, I think of um, trust and relationship in the medical relationship. But if I'm a parent, I, you know, I just want you to help my kid. You know, I'm, I want to trust you as the expert. Uh, I may not agree with what you say at the end of the day. That's my right. But I want to hear what you have to say. And I find over and over again, look, you and I could talk for an hour about specific herbs and specific medicines and specific treatments. So much of it is individualized that that's honestly, that's the easy part is the picking of the things. Right. It's this, it's this kind of conversation and relationship. And I think 90% of healing happens when you pay attention to that. I, I, I say this tongue in cheek a little bit, but when I came out of um, training in Arizona, my wife was a nutritionist and I had bought into the theory that nutrition was paramount. Number one, microbiome, you name it, this and anything. And my partner who's 83, who is the smartest person in our clinic would always say, nope, the mind is way more important. And we'd argue back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and in the last six years, I have finally flipped over and given up my belief that nutrition is number one. I think mental health is number one. And to your point, everybody has a story and everybody wants their story to be heard and validated as their story, right or wrong. It's still their story. And that validation allows people to live within the framework of their story, even if it's trauma. Right. Part of trauma is learning to live with your trauma. And, and I think that's where, you know, the stuff you're saying is, is gold, because if people would just allow the listening to occur on the front end, too, and the providers would do the listening, we would solve a lot of the problems just by letting people solve their own problems. And I find I have a very strong Medicaid clinic. And in the beginning, I used to do a ton of lab work and it became very difficult financially for patients to afford it, let alone Medicaid cover it. And I realized after a while that if I stuck to some core principles, like you're saying, mental health structure, you know, counseling, we get people in journaling, uh, music therapy, art therapy, and then worked on the fundamentals of nutrition, worked on the fundamentals of exercise, most diseases went away. And it was really interesting because I'd spent so much time doing labs that I really thought labs were a critical part of my world. And labs are important, but they tend to be much less important than I thought they were. So yeah. to that point, Larry, you know, you, you have fundamental core things that you tell probably most or all of your patients. You know, what are some concrete things you can tell the listeners that they should be doing right now? And, and let's just take COVID as an example. Let's not worry about the anxiety side or any of that. Just let's say COVID. If you want to prevent a negative outcome from whatever infectious pandemic comes down the road, whatever issue that we're dealing with at the time, what are the fundamental core principles of child health that make such a difference that you see? The good news is it's the same for everything. It's the same for yeah. COVID as it is for anxiety, as it is for diabetes, as it, you know, and on and on. So here's, here's what I would say, and I'll try to keep it succinct. Number one, have some kind of daily awareness practice. We can call it a mindfulness practice. I don't care what it is, contemplative, reflective, 
you could journal for five minutes a day, you could take a run, you could um, play music, you could sing and dance, you can meditate, you can do yoga, I don't care what you do. You can pick one thing, five minutes a day, where you just pause, notice what's going on right now, take a breath and move on, and that's it. So cultivating some kind of awareness practice, that's number one. Number two, eat real food. You know, you wanna be paleo, you wanna be gluten-free, you wanna be, I'm, without getting into all that, eat things, it's Michael Pollan's rules, you know, basically yeah. eat real food, more plants, not too much. That's it. So keeping it simple. And I would say, the more that we can, and if you can do this, it's great. You can do it in a window box in an apartment, but the more you can grow your own food, cook it, teach your kids to cook, the healthier you're gonna be. So that's number two. Number three, unplug. You gotta recharge, right? So I'll include sleep in this and screen time and all that. A sort of the B component of this is getting outside. So more outdoor time in nature, connecting, look at a tree, touch the ground, feel the wind. If you look around, if you need a reminder of like with whatever swirl is going on in your life, whatever issues there are, if you need a reminder of just like long scale, millions of years, big picture stuff, I'm looking outside, just look at a tree or two, you know, look at the ground, somehow connect to fresh air and nature wherever you are in whatever community uh, as much as you can. And part of that is getting off of screens and devices and unplugging so you can recharge and prioritize that. So some simple solutions for that are like, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, don't be looking at your phone or your device. Half an hour, like if you can wait half an hour in the morning before you look at your phone, try that for a month, see how that is. If you could leave an hour before you wanna to go to sleep at night with no devices, see how that goes. So that's the other piece. Physical activity, tr you try to move your body in some way where you're feeling your hair sweat, you know, where you're just, you're noticing your heart, you're getting your heart rate up. It could be walking, it could be biking, it could be indoors, outdoors. You know, if you can combine it with outdoor time, that's even better if you can do that in a safe way. 30 minutes, three times a week if you wanna start there, but optimally five times a week, 30 minutes a day physical activity in so many ways. And the last thing I'll say, there's, there's a number of other things, but I would say focus on connection, relationship, real connection, real relationship. Texting doesn't count. Email doesn't <laughs> count. You know, I know for a lot of kids, they're like, oh, Dr. Rosen, he's old. He doesn't get it. Like, that's the only way I, when I talk to my friends that I'm texting them, I'm, you know, I'm snapping them. I'm, uh, you know, we're looking at TikToks together. We're watching Netflix today. Like that's their social time. That's fine. That's not enough. You know, devote some time to cultivating real face-to-face -face relationships. If you look at kids who are, who have significant adverse childhood experiences, trauma in their childhood, and you want to say, what's the one protective factor that makes the biggest difference in their life? It's a solid relationship with one adult. That is the most single greatest protective factor is true for all of us. We are social beings. It's how we have evolved. It's how we've survived over thousands and thousands of years. So prioritizing relationship and, and connection is that we know it's a, it's a key factor in heart disease and cancer and so many things. So I would say those are really the fundamentals. 
and I sort of look at those exactly as the stools of a chair, right? If you're if you're if you're working on all four of those stool legs, um, or sorry, the legs of a chair. If you're working on all four of those legs, you know the fundamentals are the chair stays up. You knock one leg out, there's a major stressful event. The chair probably stays stays up. As soon as you knock a second leg out, the chair is going to fall over. And that to me is the euphemism for poor health. So. If we do work on these fundamentals, the odds of the body breaking down in a way that's significant, I think is much less. I think we're, you and I are both blessed by having patients that are younger, they are resilient, they heal faster. We don't deal with the more problematical things that the adult world deals with, although that's getting more tricky in our teenagers as I've seen over the past decade. Um, but the other thing I'll add to that, I think your points are beautiful, is, is for the kids who don't wanna move or, or, or are significantly challenged with weight, even five minutes a day of that exercise building to that 30, three days a week, five days a week, for some people really is the, the other big piece of the pie. That's so, so important because I, I know, you know I, I've seen people with exercise in the exercise world, if they go to the gym for five minutes, they're more likely to go back the next day than if they go for an hour the first day and they're so sore, they're three days out before they go back and it breaks the routine. So maybe that's sort of that reality. So let's, let's skip to one other thing. So I, I have a couple supplements I do like kids taking all the time. Do you have any favorites that you think all children should take? Um, and, I, and I do say all. Yeah, I do. Um, I'd like to believe that there's enough, um, that we can get everything we need from our food. And I hear that said a lot and that's, that's a nice wish. I think for a variety of reasons, including changes in food supply and the way we grow food, uh, the way kids eat. So for me, Fundamentally, um, I, I would say almost all kids I'm recommending a probiotic supplement, uh, an omega-3 supplement, and a D3, vitamin D3 supplement. Those are the basics, the core foundation of the things I recommend pretty much for all kids. And the rationale behind that, and we can say, well, D3, don't you get that from sunlight? Yeah. I have plenty of kids who spend a lot of time outside and they are very vitamin D depleted. So I'm not sure there's anyone who can get enough D um, without taking some kind of supplementation. Omega-3s, if kids ate fish, you know, several times a week, you know, certain kinds of fish safely, I find very few will do that. Very few families will do that. So in lieu of that, I think a small amount. And if you're vegan or vegetarian, there are other options that we can talk about, but some kind of omega-3. And probiotics, again, the, the pushback I'll get is, well, what about yogurt? Mm, that's not really a great solution. A lot of kids can't do dairy. Um, there's an unreliable culture count. I think if you do have that rare kid who eats tons of fermented and cultured foods, that's probably okay. And if that's culturally appropriate for them, that's great. By and large, I find for me, I'm curious to hear what you recommend, but those are the major things that I look at. So I am after oof, 22 years of sitting in this chair, I've come to the point now where the one thing I 100% ask every single person to take daily without question is omega-3s. And primarily, I think that's to your point, kids can't get it because they're not consuming the fish. So many people are missing the fads too, genes. So if they're getting it through plant-based sources, they can't break it down. So their omega-3 index is off. So I am universally now applying that, especially with the data looking at concussions and head injury and brain inflammation 
So I'm trying to preempt the pandas. I'm trying to preempt some of those other things that could come down the road, um, head injuries in sports. So that's my universals is fish oil. And I tend to, I tend to use um, Barleen's primarily from a flavor perspective. I think the kids like it the most. I tend to aim for a relatively reasonably high dose, 1500 milligrams of EPA and DHA combined. Um, that's sort of where I'm settling out. Now, when they're younger, I do I change the dose based on age. So that's sort of a universal for the older kids. Now, clearly we can go up to three grams even higher if we need to. I don't think there's any downstream risk of this. There's some questionable stuff around clotting. I've never seen it nor heard about it nor read anything that's in kids makes me wonder if that's a problem. So for me, omega threes are a big one. Vitamin D, no question. We're in North Carolina. So a lot of our kids do get adequate sun this far South from April till end of October. So I have all my kids do D three and K actually, I, I use, I, I like uh, life extensions There's other brands too. And I'm just naming the ones I personally like, I get no kickbacks. So anyone listening to it, there's not, these are not promotionals, but I like life, life extensions, vitamin D and K combination. And um, I have kids taking that through the winter and then probiotic. Um, I'm, I'm on the fence on, honestly. Um, I, I love Avivo for babies, the B Infantis product. I think all breastfeeding newborns should take that. I think that's brilliant. Outside of that, I love probiotics for dysentery. Um, so somebody has a viral infection, something else is going on GI wise. Outside of that, I am really trying to push fiber, 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 fiber. If I do use a probiotic, I like HMF Neuro or Therabiotic by Claire Labs. Those are my two favorites. But outside of that, I don't really do much. Now I love magnesium in cases like, like for example, the anxiety case, I use mag, um, magnesium citrate or magtorate. Um, but that's sort of my go-to. And I find that if the kids do the four legs, the stool plus that we're in good shape for a long time. And so I sort of pair it back what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're, you know, in a primary care practice, we're dealing with a lot of infants, um, breastfed, bottle fed, you know, there's a lot of different circumstances. Obviously we're looking at maternal diet too. I'm just, you know, the evidence shifts and I am always a little wary of like, what will we uncover 10, 20 years down the line that we should have yeah. known now and that's always a possibility. But on the other hand, what we're seeing right now is a lot of inflammatory disease, right? And we're yeah. really trying hard to prevent a lot of the things we know are going to happen if we don't intervene. Right. So it's it's that balance, right? Right, right. And I agree entirely. And I think that's the, to, it's the continually perusing the research to see where we fall out and the best answer. And, um, you know, when I've been doing a lot of these microbiome analyses on kids, especially, I find that there a lot of them are missing the lactobacillus species, interesting enough. So those kids I am putting back on, on lactobacillus-based probiotics and mixed species. Um, but I, to me, I think it, going back to Michael Pollan's work, fiber, 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 mm -hmm. and yeah. more fiber. You know, if you just give your kids fiber and lots of it, you will support the right part of their microbiome that does downstream decrease the inflammatory risk, the Treg cells, all that stuff. So, yeah. All right. So I, I know your answer already, but I, I want you to formalize it. <laughs> I ask every guest this, and I didn't preempt you with this, but um, if you had a golden ticket to give to Congress or the president to change one thing right away, I will tell you mine. So I'll give you a chance to think. I am a school lunch guy. I think it is, it is an abomination to have a country that has so much money provide kids unhealthy food that's calorically dense and micronutrient poor on a routine basis, right? So COVID took a lot of the food away from these kids. So they're unfortunately malnourished completely. But even that being said, it sort of makes me crazy that when they do eat food, it's not nourishing the whole child. So that, that's my rant. And I'm going to get off my soapbox quickly so you can take it. 
I'm going to I'm going to give you sort of a two parter, which builds on what you said. One would be, as I said earlier, the embedding of this whole health learning in all public schools everywhere from pre-K through 12th grade. And that would include all of the whole health pieces that I mentioned. But if I had to pick one specific piece, it would be teaching social emotional learning through some mindfulness self-regulation school to, to, tool to everybody from birth on, you know, and I think, I honestly think that would have the greatest impact on our overall health and well-being as a, as a world. Yeah, I agree. And I love it. I think you're a gift to this world, Larry, um, you know, for people that want to follow, you're the founder of the whole child center, you know, wholechildcenter.org, I think is the, or.com. One of the, is it com dot or org. org? Yeah. Dot, dot, org, yeah. Dot, dot org is your website. You've written a ton. You've got a lot of information accessible. Is there any other way for listeners who want to follow an amazing pediatrician? No, if they go to our website, wholechildcenter.org, all the socials are there. If you like Instagram or whatever, you know, it's, I, I have a love hate relationship with that, but I, I love connecting with people out there. And I think part of our mission is to educate and, and help. And I really appreciate you having me on today and, and taking a few minutes to talk about what we have. My friend, appreciate you very much. Have a great day. You too. Well, there you have it. A stimulating conversation with Dr. Larry Rosen, looking at ways that as a group, we can try and affect change in our children and in uh, basically all the children in this country to help them deal with whatever comes our way. I think the social and emotional regulation piece is, is just critical. And, and he lays out a very good case for why that matters. And hopefully this will become part of curricula across the country where we're trying to help children learn ways of dealing with stress. I think this is just, just such an underutilized understanding via different mechanisms, whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, whether it's uh, Tai Chi, whether it's any other form of me mental or physical de-stressing techniques. These are ways that everybody adults and children alike, but specifically in this case, children who are our next generation are going to learn how to deal with emotional regulation. And I think there's nobody better right now poised to help this fight move forward than Dr. Rosen. I think you learned that today. Now, other pieces of this discussion that were incredibly useful are actually looking at each situation individually and what other aspects of the child's whole health care can we provide through education, through specific targeted supplements, through nutritional avenues, through the four legs of the stool. I think the, the case was very well laid out for that as well. And I think that's sort of the, the critical piece behind why Dr. Rosen is such an exemplary uh, pediatrician in this space. So with that, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Larry Rosen. And on to the next. And as always, remember to hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.